0: Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 68 of Cage Rage, the Nicolas Cage podcast. Uh, This is the podcast in which I, your humble host and guide, Daryl Edge, take you, the listener, on the journey to true Cage nirvana. Come along with me to achieve the highest, most purest, spiritual, emotional, physical, everything form of being as we get a little bit closer to understanding, a little bit better, the man they call Nicolas Cage, the golden hog of Hollywood. Um... How are you this week? I hope you are all right. I hope you're good. September is well and truly here, and what that means, without a shadow of a doubt, is that I am, I am almost thirty. Um, so this is the last podcast episode of my twenties. Emotional, if anything. Uh, next week's episode, by the time that is out, um, I will have turned the big three zero. Um, so there we go. Uh, get your tissues ready. Tears are to be had. Amongst other things. Other than that, not much to report this week. Uh, A week off the old day job. um, Because, you know, when you go through a traumatic event like turning 30, you need it. Other than that, I've been playing Halo because I'm 13 again. Um, But having a lovely time otherwise. And also there's a game called Wilmot's Warehouse. If you like sorting things out. In cube form, um, play that. That's that's a lot of fun, actually. That's my recommendation for gaming this week, if you're asking for such a thing. Um, not much else, otherwise, to talk to. Um, I'm off for a meal later with my other half, so that'll be nice. I think there's fancy things like cauliflower on the menu, so I'm well out of my league here. Um, so, uh, other than that, like I said, not much to report back. Um, so we'll just get the admin out of the way. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at cage underscore podcast. You can find me on Instagram, at cage rage pod. And you can find me in all the usual places where you do your streaming, your Spotify, your Apple, your Google, Amazon, Stitcher, Deezer, Tuned In, iHeartRadio, Acast, um, Podchaser as well, of course, as ever. If you're enjoying the show Uh get in touch on the socials leave a rating if your podcast provider allows you such a thing like apple podcast like pod chaser uh, helps the show grow and it lets me know that this isn't all for nothing that my 20s weren't an entire waste of time um, so with that said uh, we've got a lovely lovely episode today. Um, I'm joined by B. Jemine from the Super Network to talk all about Dying of the Light from 2014. This is the Paul Schrader-directed Dying of the Light. This is the Paul Schrader-directed Dying of the Light. Um, So we're talking about what is the perfect gift for Nicolas Cage in this one. Uh, We're pitching Cagezilla. And also, we're getting into the real meat of this film, one of those interesting behind-the-scenes things where the 2014 version of this film we got heavily tampered and subsequently would lead to the Schrader cut of Dark in 2017. Um, so Bead was the man to go to in all of this. He's got all the gossip. Um, and really, I'm listening and learning in this one as well because it's um, Dark. You can find it. A bit of a bugger to find, though. It's a bit of a bugger to source online. Um, but all of that said, let's get into it. It's down Edge. It's Bede mind, Dying of a Light. Dark. So 2014 comes to an end for Cage as we see things out with the psychological thriller Dying of the Light. This week Cage stars as Evan Lake, a veteran CIA agent who goes on one last mission to track down an old nemesis after becoming terminally ill. Now joining me on the journey to true Cage nirvana this week to see if this film's light is fading fast if there is a light at the end of the tunnel is film critic and podcaster Bede Germain. Bede, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good, thanks. Daryl, how are you?
0: I'm not too bad. Uh, I mean I think I think I've got to address first and foremost for the listener, uh Bede's outstanding choice of attire, um, which is um, <laughs> a it's, uh... hoodie of cage faces there.
1: Well actually it's a whole uh, outfit cuz uh, you, you can't see it in the uh in the zoom video chat but I'm actually wearing uh Nicolas Cage uh well matching Nicolas Cage pants as well.
0: <laughs> and it's- also
1: wearing a Nicolas Cage shirt underneath here as well so the try I go all, Yeah like I will I guess I'll well, I can show you but nobody else can see it but it's uh this one.
0: Oh the cage fighting top bees yep. versus vampire's kiss. <laughs> oh, and infinitely jealous that I don't own all three of those items in my own personal wardrobe for my day-to-day wear.
1: Indeed. But uh, yeah, well, the sort of the tracksuit, uh, a friend of mine, uh got it for me for Christmas a few years back. And then the shirt, I just, as soon as somebody tagged me in a post on Twitter a while back, I just saw it. And I'm like, I nearly need to buy this shirt. And funnily enough, Um, My co-host over at uh, the Super Network, uh, Super Marcy and I, when we uh, interviewed Nicolas Cage's son, uh, Weston Cage Coppola, like a few months back for the film uh, Assault on uh, VA-33, I actually wore the shirt and Marcy mentioned it to him and of course he got to see the shirt and you can see the video up on YouTube, on our uh, YouTube channel, so... At least uh, Cage's son is aware of the existence of that shirt, so... <laughs> <laughs> I love that it
0: runs in the family, the awareness and the uh, the embracing of the, um, of the Cage fandom, almost. I know Cage has been quite partial to wearing um, a Cage meme shirt in his time, um, even though I don't know if he truly knows what it means. I think he was just like, oh, it's my face and a shirt, I'll wear it.
1: Um, Indeed. T- <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> or it will probably be more like, a, Like, son, if I, I need a new shirt for Christmas, can you find me one that at least has my face on it? Or at least multiple faces on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah.
0: I know times have been hard this year in Western, but if you could find me at least three faces of mine... um, Oh, man, what a, shopping, what a, what a joy to go Christmas shopping for Cage, the man who
1: has I it all. I mean, uh, that's the thing. Where, where would you go to buy something for Nicolas Cage? I mean, this is a man who, you know, has bought like everything, you know, he's bought like first editions of, uh, Superman comic books. He's, I think at one point he, either he did buy or attempted to buy Dracula's castle. And also, (laughs) of course, infamously, of course, he, uh, bought a, uh, a T-Rex skull, which ended up being, uh which was actually stolen and was sold on the black market as well. So what, what do you get a man who pretty much would buy anything like for Nicholas Cage? The only thing I can think of is you get him a shirt with his face on it.
0: Ugh, his face on it, not off it. Uh, uh, anyone, <laughs> anyone, is it too early in the podcast? Uh, to be... I be? Indeed, <laughs> I, I see what you did there. <laughs> at least, at least someone did. Um, I mean, it's you know one of the questions of our time. Though. What do you get the man who was literally bought and had to sell back everything? Um, I mean, the black market dinosaur bones, where else do you get a dinosaur bone these days? Um, I know he's he's got his sort of py- open casket grave pyramids, um, tombstone in New Orleans that you can sort of go and visit. So he's got his death sorted out, so you can't really get him anything for death because he's already got it covered. Um, I think he's t- already taken his his current wife there to visit it, which is you no know, a hell of a thing to visit. Um by all accounts. So he recently married and say, Oh, do you want to visit the place where I'm gonna be buried? Uh that's a real <laughs> that's a relationship tester right there. That
1: that's just a uh, true romance right there.
0: <laughs> that's 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 a man who's got it figured out. I mean I know he's he's a big fan of Godzilla? I mean, you know, do you, do you take the risk and go in going on some Godzilla memorabilia? Maybe getting like a yeah, real maybe, scale?
1: Or even, um, taking to, cause I know in Japan at the moment, they actually built like a guest, I think it's a, a Godzilla theme park. And there's this one kind of, uh, ride where you do a zip line all the way into Godzilla's mouth. And it's like huge. Like there's yeah. pictures and everything. If you look up, um, sort of Godzilla theme park or Godzilla, Zip line ride—it's like this huge mouth, and you just like zip line all the way into it. So I think if uh, if you wanted to get uh, caged, something uh, Godzilla-related, I'd buy something like that, or you could make a T-shirt with Nicolas Cage's head on Godzilla's body. Ooh, and make a Cagezilla.
0: Ooh, I feel like um, a box has been unlocked in my brain with the possibilities. Like the ultimate cage. Zilla experience, God! If that's not a merchandise opportunity right there, Bede, um, You know, we'll take it. We'll take us. We'll we'll sort out the split after the recording, obviously. But yeah,
1: although knowing our luck, somebody probably have already thought of the idea and it is already selling it right now. If I Google it right now, probably someone's already created it. I mean, that's the thing about Nicolas Cage. Like, if there's something out there that has the that is the possibility of have Nicolas Cage's face on it it probably already exists. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I, I did just quickly go- Google it, and there is a, a cage, which is um, a MMA promotion in uh, looks like Washington, D.C., uh, perhaps, or the D.C. area, I should say, at least. So um, there may be an MMA aspect to it. I think if you throw a hyphen in there, you'll avoid some legal um, snafus. Oh, yeah. Then you'll be absolutely fine. Um, but from a quick search... It's looking hopeful that Cagezilla uh, is still on. So keep a lookout, Cagezilla coming your way, twenty one twenty two. 22 uh, <laughs> Get ready for it. Um, the Christmas shopping aside, um, as with all guests on the podcast, I'm always fascinated to know. Um, and I think I can probably take a guess um, based on the attire alone. Uh, I always like to ask, are you a fan of Nicolas Cage? Rate, hate, tolerate. Uh, where do you stand on the man I call the golden hog of Hollywood?
1: Oh, no, I hate his guts. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Podcast over. <laughs> Podcast over. No, I'm a huge I'm a huge Nick Cage fan. It's, a, it's kind of more, it's funny, though. I've always liked Nick Cage, especially like, you know, when I was a teenager, right, you know, in the 90s and right up, you know, through the 2000s as well. But it's really around the two thousand and tens. Like my, I guess I started to become more and more of a fan of Nick Cage, particularly during you know you know the past ten years of this period of his career. Which, as we all know, like during the two thousand, like you know during the eighties and nineties, he like had that sort of string of being in more sort of critically acclaimed or altered driven films. And then, of course, like once he sort of had the massive kind of back to back kind of Success with, you know, The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off. That made him, like, a huge movie star. And then in the 2000s, you know, he did a lot of blockbusters and all that. I mean, he still did, like, you know, kind of more indie stuff in between. But it was mainly kind of big, major blockbuster films. But, of course, when, you know, he had his kind of uh, problems with the IRS. And then he pretty much went, uh, started picking projects left and right through the 2010s. I, I was just kind of fascinated where his career was going and like for a little while there I was a little bit worried but then even though yeah you'll get the occasional really sort of bad film that he was in but you would find some really interesting nuggets and then it sort of made me realize like I mean yeah like you'll make like so many films a year but you'll find something that is actually really interesting. And, you know, and now in the last few years, like he's been in so many uh, projects that I, I would say is up there as some of his best work or at least his most interesting work, you know, with films like Mandy and Color Out of Space and uh, uh, Prisoners of the Ghostland. And and also, even though I still haven't seen this movie yet, uh, Peak, which is, he's getting some of the best reviews of his career in like the fact that he's making so many interesting choices like, and making massive swings when a lot of actors are his ilk at the moment, you know, like your John, Tra- like John Travolta or Bruce Willis or who are kind of doing all these, you know, mix, doing all these VOD movies like on a dime. And it's, and Nicolas Cage does do that occasionally, but I think compared to them, especially Bruce Willis in particular, like you can tell Cage is putting a lot more effort into the work. Even if it's like a much, whether it's a, a very an action film or some kind of crazy little indie film or, you know, something where he just plays it completely straight. You can definitely tell that regardless of the quality of the film itself, he's putting 110% into his performance. And it actually seems like he's, you know, putting in the effort and not just being there for like one or two days for a million dollar paycheck and looking bored or at the same time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> absolutely I think that's um, <clears throat> what's always interesting about Cage as he hit the nail on the head is his, the choices that he's making that he continues to make and it's something I've said before you know he could have rested on his laurels a thousand different points in his career um, he could have been sort of you know that uh, indie sort of darling with a lot of more artistic and almost dramary romantic films from his early 80s career he could have etched out a career being um an action star, and I suppose would have taken a much more similar path to Bruce Willis, who he keeps getting compared to, frustratingly in this day and age, after the likes of uh, mm. Face Off and um, uh, Con Air and the likes there. But um, I always, I always find it to be like the, just the most interesting sort of tell that you know, after Face Off, he did City of Angels, um, which is sort of two completely contrasting films, it's really been sort of a summary that you just never know. What you're gonna—he is the Forrest Gump box of chocolates of acting. uh, Oh yeah, (laughs) you never know what you're gonna get from him, and that's really summarized when you look at his film career as well. And it's so, um, I think, really heartening as well. I suppose for like Cage fans, you know, as biased as we may be towards Cage, to see that even after, and especially when we talk about this film in 2014 with Dying of the Light, when he had this run of sort of direct video just not good, quite bottom-of-the-barrel films for various reasons that he had to star in them. But to sort of see when you look at his career that he's still uh, offering interesting films and critically acclaimed films. Obviously, you know, we record this at the start of August. But uh, unfortunately for yourself in Australia, myself in the UK, we still don't have Pig just yet. It's hopefully around the corner. It's like Hoof just in sightline. Um, but to know that he's, as we said, he's getting the the greatest sort of reviews for a live-action film in his career, and he's sort of 57 oh, yeah. years of age, and he's, you know, you can say, oh, you know, he's, he's still got it. I say, God damn it, he never lost it. Um, and and how, how dare you even assume such a thing that he would ever run out of it, but that he's still pushing these performances, which... Um, and again, without seeing the film, hopefully there's an award nomination or nominations in the future here because of the critical acclaim it's getting, like I hope mm. beyond hope it's not gonna be uh snubbed, and we're not gonna get a repeat of uh Joe, which is one I've said before oh, yeah. I'll say again, um which I think there'll still be a good a good accompanying pieces once they're both out with Joe and Pig but um, and I'm interested in your thoughts as well Joe is one I've said, not just one of Cage's but maybe just one of the most underrated films of the 2010s, was just viciously snubbed left, right and centre um, did you sort of find that with Joe as well?
1: Yeah, I, I'd have to agree I think um, with Joe like, I was very pleasantly surprised by Joe, I, I mean I shouldn't have been because you know, it has Nicolas Cage in the, in the lead role and also directed by David Gordon Green who kind of like Cage is very unpredictable with his choices of films. Like he goes back and forth making like these kind of very sort of very art house indie films to making mainstream comedy films. And now he's become a horror director as well. But with Joe though, that one I just found such a great film. Like one that I agree with you is so underrated and one that kind of people have been sleeping on, even though I would say that, Joe is definitely up there as has without a doubt, one of Nicholas Cage's best performances. And funnily enough, kind of reading a lot of the reviews for pig where some people like say that pig is like without his most subtle performance that he's ever given. But I'm, and I think as great as that is, I, I part of me just thinks like, um, Oh, well we can't, if you saw Joe a few years earlier, you could would have got to see that as well. Cause I'd, to a pig. Like Joe was definitely one of his most subtle performances he is ever given as an actor.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I it kind of makes me wonder now, again, taking the um the success of a pig into light, like if a film like Joe had been released now, like in the last year or mm. so, you know, would it be garnering the same attention um as I feel that Joe should have had uh back in twenty thirteen, which was uh, just unfortunately lost in the shuffle, but um it feels like Pig is going to go the same way.
1: Yeah, well, Joe kind of was in that sort of in-between period where Cage was kind of leaving, you know, that sort of being in major blockbusters behind and then going into kind of the VOD territory. So the movie was kind of that little sort of section there where, you know, like every now and again, like I said before, Uh, Cage would star in an indie film outside the blockbuster stuff so it was kind of like that little in-between there like it was like you know post you know uh Drive Angry and and all and Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance and then of course um this film that we're talking about today so it was like smack bang in the middle of that little period there.
0: Yes, yeah, so it's, so, it's so easy, so easy to miss uh, and sort of fall asleep on Joe, and then, and obviously we get to 2014, which I sort of described before as um, a bit of a year uh, for Cage for for film output. You know, we start with uh, Rage or Tokarev if you're in Europe, uh, Outcast, Left Behind, which is uh, debatably one of the worst films ever made. Certainly, if you're going by Rotten Tomatoes standards. Um and then we come to uh dying of the light sort of seeing out twenty fourteen for Cage, which was um a very interesting film for many reasons uh a lot of behind the scenes tampering which uh led to a lot of controversy uh disownment of the film and then sort of director paul schrader you know going on to make his uh the sort of hashtag release the schrader cut. Of, of the film as well. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, it, I don't want to admit, I think before I came into Dying of the Light, I wasn't aware sort of of, of all the behind the scenes drama uh, that happened with this film as well. I sort of glanced at it and was like, oh, okay, we've got a bit of a you know, psychological thriller film. Well, we've got a bit of a hook. It's, you know, that the aging agent who's got that one last case, but, you know, you've got to have your, um, uh, your agent, your detective have that kind of hook. Um, so it's him versus terrorism versus dementia in this kind of extremely boring 90 minute three way Um, but you know before we sort of delve into all of the outside um, is Dying of the Light was that a film you'd seen before recording today?
1: Actually uh, I'd only just watched it recently for the first time but it had been on my radar for quite a while for a lot of the reasons you said but even before, like, um, Nicholas Case got involved, I'd heard about this project for years. Um, because I knew, uh, Paul Schrader wrote the script and people who kind of like read it back in the day, like in the mid to late 2000s were like praising this script for being kind of this unique, interesting take on the spot, on the sort of a spy genre, um, and also, I think at the time, uh, Nicholas Windingreffen, who directed Drive, was attached to director with Harrison Ford in the lead role as Evan Lake and uh, Channing Tatum as uh, his partner, whose name uh, uh Milton Schultz. Um, so they, but that version of the story, I mean, of the film, I should say, um, didn't get off the ground because of creative differences between Harrison Ford and Nicholas Winding Refn, because Harrison Ford wanted the film to have a happier ending, which was a complete you know contrast to the bleak ending that the script had. So Ford left, and then eventually, uh, Winding Refn left to go off and make Drive. So Schrader decided to take to direct the film himself, but Nicholas Winding Refn, uh stayed on as an executive producer of the film, and. And then, of course, you know, they they got Nicolas Cage to cast in the film and the late Anton Yelchin to be in it as well. And then they filmed it. And then, of course, in post-production, that's when kind of shit hit the fan, when the producers took away the film from Schrader and basically made their own cut. And then, of course, and another reason why I, I found this film interesting well, two reasons, I should say. Uh, one, this has come, probably one of the first or very few Nicolas Cage films that I know of where he actually openly disowned the film. Um, yeah. like, as we know, like, Nicolas Cage, like, had, like, dur- during the past 10 years had starred in films that are, you know, admittedly not good, but you never really heard anything, him say anything bad about it, like, when yeah. they were released or anything like that. It was only really, uh, this film that I had heard that he openly disowned. And, you know, it wasn't just him, but Schrader, um, Anton Yelchin, and Nicholas Windegreffen all basically rubbed their hands away from this film and just um, basically did not want to bar this film because the theatrical release film uh, was not the cut that Paul Schrader intended to be released. Yeah it's 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 so like
0: interesting like i said to read into all of this because i went in pretty blind um up until about like a day or two ago and just um i think you can make the case that the story behind the scenes of this film is much mm-hmm. more interesting than uh, at least the dying of the light version that we get um that's why I, I sort of watched this yesterday but um just to see all this with you know Schrader saying that the the film was taken from it was re-edited, re-scored, remixed he was kept out of it. He couldn't speak publicly on the matter. Um, he had to keep his name attached to the film for sort of uh, via contractual obligations as well. He wasn't able to, I guess, in credit terms, disown the film. But um, again, touching on what you said there as well, it's interesting with Cage, who you know, you know, let's be honest, he's he's made a few stinkers in his time. You know, what actor hasn't? But I think between. Dying of the Light and maybe 211. There could be others, I could be wrong. I think those are the initial that come to mind that he's publicly disowned um in terms of his own filmography. Um I know it he was sort of quietly disowned between uh, him, Yelkin, Schrader, and Reffin as well. Um but it's just it's just so interesting um that uh when you sort of look into this and just how how tampering can just completely derail a film as well. Um I know a later film of Cage's Army of one that was sort of had a lot of behind the scenes tampering courtesy of the Weinsteins as well. So the director basically had to shoot the film how he wanted it shot so they could edit as little as possible. But um I think it's always you know it's it's quite sad when you sort of you 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 see the film that you get with dying at the light at least, and you uh, and you can sort of you can sort of tell there's there's the nugget of a good idea in there, but what you get is kind of you know broadly speaking here ninety minutes of just very dull, very boring, just uh, and I kind of hate being that guy who sort of checks how long's left on a film, but when I was watching this, I was I I had found myself checking the time so so often. I was like, right, surely there's about ten minutes left. I checked the running time. I was only half an hour in the film. I was like, Jesus. I'm so <laughs> I'm so I'm so it's due to my own stupid obligation that I'm here watching this film right now. Um Yeah, I, it was I don't yeah, I was gonna say um, as well.
1: Yeah, well it's kind of the same for me. Like I was sitting there watching the film and I thought, oh it must be like forty 45 minutes in the film, and I checked the running time, and I was only 15 minutes in.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it seems to be a, a theme of this film, and it warps your concepts of reality and time around you because it's so painfully boring and dull. Um, but sort of looking else into this as well, um, so it looks like... Um, again, I don't know if this was in the sort of wake of like the post-taken world, but it looked like the film's finances wanted a more uh, from my notes conventional espionage thriller, um, as opposed to, you know, what we got in the dark cut was a much more experimental offering from Schrader. Mm. Um so they just wanted something very by the book, something that would just sort of they could sort of like cash in on a bit of a genre, some sort of, you know, cage appeal maybe to get those sales in as well. Um, and then I think they sold it on to Grindstone Entertainment, who was also cashing in on the genre repeal of the espionage thriller. So it was just as soon as it finished filming, they said that's a wrap. Just no one higher than the people on the ground making this film gave two shits about what happened to this film. Um, you know, and I'm not, some, I'm not really someone who gets like protective over films. You know, I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just a consumer. I'm a dirty scum slug consumer writhing all over the produce i'm fed like a like a boar in a trough um but again you just can't have a help but get so disheartened um when you you just see how uh much one's vision was taken away from them
1: oh yeah definitely like i'm a big um believer of you know the director's vision like like i that's i guess for me as a film critic like i'm having done this for so long Like, if I find out, like, a film has had massive behind-the-scenes trouble, I will kind of give it a little bit of slack. Like, even if the film itself is not good, but I will give it a bit of slack because I know, like, what happened with this film after, like, Mm. during the making of it or afterwards. But it's interesting to me now, we're kind of living in this age where, like, where hashtag culture is, like, if a director's film isn't like the one that was released in cinemas is not the version that they set out to make and was heavily tampered by the studios. Um, you know, fans of this director's work will go out of their way to want to see that director's intended cut. Well, I mean, we've seen it quite a lot over the past year, you know, with uh, the Snyder uh, with Zack Snyder's Justice League, which was like people kind of assumed oh, it was just a you know, a couple of fanboys just getting angry and blah 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 let's just ignore them but you know that passion behind it whether you agree with her or not resulted in a film that in a lot of ways uh is hugely superior to what got released in the cinema and now we kind of see it again with yeah back again the superhero films uh david Ayer's suicide squad which also was another film that had a massive case of behind the scenes tampering and people want to see that cut. But if you want to go in other genres, like I remember I've seen even campaigns for uh, Wes Craven's original cut of cursed the werewolf film he made back in 2005. People want to see the original cut of that since pretty much over 70% of that film was reshot and it took like was in production for like two years before it actually got released. So, um, and also, you know, Schrader himself, this is not the first time this has happened to him because it previously happened to him when he directed uh, Exorcist The Beginning because he directed that film and then the producers saw his cut and they thought it was kind of too philosophical, wasn't scary enough, so they hired Reddy Harlan to come in and reshot nearly all of it to make it a much more conventional horror film. And then, of course you know, since that film was so badly received, uh, the Warner Brothers and the studio and the producers were like, you know what, um, let's Paul Schrader release his original cut of that film, uh, which ended up becoming Dominion. Um, and, you know, that one has its issues as well, but it ended up being a lot more of an interesting film. So if anyone who has gone through so many studio tampering throughout their whole career as a filmmaker, it's definitely Paul Schrader, that's for sure. Yeah,
0: I mean, absolutely, and it's and, you know from the sort of the the name power of Paul Schrader alone, I think that would have drawn a lot of eyes to the project, and I suppose you know just to. Yeah a quick glance over his sort of career. You know, This is uh, the man who directed sort of, uh, just looking at American Gigolo, um, Dying of the Light that we're talking about, obviously. Um, and of course, was the writer for Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, uh, Bringing Out the Dead, another Cage film, uh, the Scorsese directed Bringing Out the Dead from 99 as well. So, um, you know, you can't sort of look, I think if you, you know anything about Schrader's career, you come into this film and you see what we ended up with, in Dying of the Light, then I guess if you didn't know anything about what we've been discussing here, then you'd think oh, I guess Schrader kind of had an off day with this one or or, or something. But um, I think it's sort of what you said as well, obviously. Um I think if I hadn't had known everything else in the background about this then, and if it wasn't for the commitment of a podcast, because I'm an idiot, um, I would have probably turned this film off in the, within 10, 15 minutes and sort of like, you know, not for me, done. Um, but as you said, I think knowing this though, I think it does offer something of a leniency when you go into it. So you, you're a bit more willing to sort of give it, give it a chance there. But um, obviously that, I think that's sort of, you know, naturally bring us on to the changes that we got obviously this was released straight to dvd it was pretty publicly disowned by sort of the the largest parties involved um an evil gabriel uh kosuth if i'm pronouncing that correctly the director of photography on the film even explained on a guest column on variety.com that's his uh color significant cinematography had been digitally altered as well, so we just got a very run of the mill um, mm. film.
1: And it just, yeah, and also like if you look at the film from a cinematography perspective, it's so visually flat, yeah, as well. And even though this is a film that had was had a budget of five million, and apparently a million of that went to Cage, um, and <laughs> rightfully um, so, exactly. Um, you know, like and you know, it just felt felt. So it just made everything look cheaper by comparison. Like, this felt more of a low budget film. Like, I've seen $5 million films that look spectacular for that budget. I mean, but this one, though, I guess maybe it's maybe they didn't color correct it, color graded it properly, or maybe it was, you know, kind of maybe due to the budget. But yeah, the sort of the flatness of the film just made. It feel even more of a low budget production than it probably needed to be. Hence, like you know, when you have someone like Schrader who's made so many great films in the past, um, and you know a cast like Nicolas Cage and Anton Yelchin, who you know he's still he who's a big star, was a big star in his own right at the time. Um, it people would sort of watch this and were like, why Why are they starring in this low budget trash? Because <laughs> it just looks and feels like that and and like you said, like the way that it's filmed, it felt sort of very dull and pedestrian as in terms of a film, even though it has actually a pretty interesting hook for a spy film
0: definitely uh, i mean, touching on the budget as well, you know for a five million, I think we can say, um even going back to the comparison with Joe, just quickly looking there, that was made on a budget of apparently four million, um so take Cage's budget away. Um, and you can make a joke, so it's it's Ooh. just what we got. Just um, you know, sort of beneath the directing and writing talents, beneath the acting talents, um, and just a lot of hardworking people in the arts who were just screwed over by every possible metric in this film. Um, so it's only natural that you know we sort of flash forward to 2017, and then we get uh, you know the hashtag unleash the the Schrader cut called Dark um so with this one basically schrader had to kind of go um like an underground project of his own where he took a rough version of the film from like uh early sort of dvd worked copies but he said throw together his own version which was much more in line with how he wanted it with as we're saying there the the cinematography all the color in there um and it was never really sort of intended for public or official release I believe he did release it on torrenting websites. It is possible yeah. to find online, so you can find it if you look hard enough for it. Um, now, as we sort of sort of saying off record, um, unfortunately, I didn't manage to get sort of the, to see the full film just for one uh, the torrent that I did find. And I will stress this is the only way to find it. I don't, I don't support torrenting. Blah blah blah. Um, it was sort of buffering every few seconds. It was just unwatchable, and yeah. the version I tried to download, even though, you know, and I you know, I don't make this, this brag um, boldly, but I have a pretty decent internet connection um, for the most part. Um, <laughs> so it was like a 4.4 gig file. Should really have taken a few minutes, but it said it was going to take about 19 hours, and I did not have 19 hours to spare to wait for that to download. So I saw a little bit of it. Unfortunately, I didn't see the whole thing. Um, but it is something I'm interest- certainly interested in watching after this. Um, and something I'll sort of touch on later that uh, Paul Schrader... And you can find this on YouTube as well. I think it was for the Rotterdam International Film Festival. There's like an hour and a half video on YouTube. Paul Schrader had like a masterclass. And for about 25, 30 minutes of that, he is talking about Dark. Um, and he shows two scenes. One of the original Dying of the Light Cut. One of his version this is where um, Evan, Nick Cage's character, uh, Milton, Anton Yelchin's character, and it is um, Michelle, who is uh, Irene Jacob, uh, where they meet in the hotel bar for the first time. There's like two comparisons of those scenes, which is a very interesting contrast. And then he also shows the final 15 minutes of the film of his dark version in its entirety as well. Um, But I know that you have seen Dark, Beard, So for for you, and obviously, you know, happy to sort of pass over the reins here to a much more experienced hand. I'll just sit in the carriage and and like, on one driver. Um, For you, (laughs) uh, how was Dark and certainly in comparison to Dying of the Light?
1: Well, I'll say this though, with Dark, it's definitely, I'll say this, compared to the, the theatrical version that we got of Dying of the Light Dark, I would say, is a much more superior film mm-hmm. like, I'll say this, it's definitely more of an experimental film, at least this version because it's, you know, Paul Strader doing a lot more experimental techniques with how he sort of approaches the story and the filmmaking um, but sort of watching it, even though like like we were discussing before like how we how, how we felt like you know the way that die in the light was made felt very sort of a bit rather dull and kind of bland but it's interesting kind of seeing the same film done in with a different approach and just seeing what you get out of it differently um because in scenes where you like in the in the original version uh we would see scenes of Nicolas Cage's character Evan Lake kind of having moments where he's like whether it's obviously that his dementia is kicking in. Like you just see him standing there, zoning out, and then, uh, he'll just come back into, you know, out of that moment. But when you watch it, the, the dark, how sort of, uh, Schrader approaches these scenes is much more sort of, uh, Experimental because he's like using footage from other sources and also kind of zooming in, zooming out, and kind of tilting the camera. And almost at times, though, I don't know if he did this type of technique or not, so I can't confirm if he did, but it almost looked like if someone took a video, got a video camera, got and videotaped a TV screen while the movie was playing and just zoomed in and out at certain spots and just edited it into the film. Like, that was really interesting. But at the same time, though, those scenes, as weird and experimental as they are, it really puts us more into the mindset of what Evan is going through throughout this whole film with those kind of moments of his mind starting to slip away. And we see him, even, like, scenes that happen throughout the whole movie, like, sometimes scenes are kind of, like, are re-shown once again in these moments, uh, where he's slipping or even scenes that Schrader himself deliberately cut out of this film. are put it as little insert shots, uh, in some of these moments, like also like the film, it begins very differently. It doesn't start off with Evan being, uh, captured and tortured by, uh, Muhammad Benir. If I butcher that character's name, please forgive me. Um, that whole opening is gone, and it re- pretty much begins with a narration, which was actually done by Ethan Hawke, explaining a, a little bit about uh, the type of dementia that Evan has in this film. And then it goes straight to Nicolas Cage at uh, at this kind of tra- training area, giving that big speech. And how that scene is whole shot and edited, it makes it much more interesting and also very disorientating as well. Yeah. And, and, and you get a lot of that throughout the rest of the film. And another thing that's interesting about this film is that it's about 20 minutes shorter than yeah. the theatrical cut. Like Trader definitely trims a lot of the fat from the film, gives it a much more interesting, a uh, quicker pace. But a lot of scenes that I personally felt were kind of rather dull and uninteresting in the theatrical cut, were given a much more better pacing and a much more of a life, uh, in this version of the film. Um, due to all the kind of the the techniques and weirdness that Trader himself just applied to these scenes. And when we get to the last half of the film, um, which is the scene where basically uh Evan ma- masquerades as a doctor to go see uh Muhammad Banir. And then, of course, once he sort of reveals himself to uh, Benia, who he really is and how they know each other. Then in the theatrical cut, like, we get that sort of him kind of zoning in and out. And then, of course, um, Evan leaves. Then he goes back to the motel. Then a shootout happens. And then he comes back and kills uh, Benia. But the interesting thing is the film e- ends at that scene, that first scene with Benia like um, with him, you know, revealing himself to him uh, after taking off his disguise. And then, of course, that's when Paul Schrader really goes in to the experimental style, like showing like archival footage and like images of scenes that happen in the film at some which, you know, we've seen before during the film and also stuff that he cut out and also like arc- as, you know, scenes that I guess were meant to kind of represent like what's happening in the world at that moment or throughout the years. And it just gets so disorientated to the point where it literally the screen becomes almost static and almost like a computer or television just completely shutting down. And then it just goes black. And then it goes to the the cemetery where we see Evan's grave. And that's where the movie ends. So we don't see the shootout that happens at the motel in the theatrical cut. We don't know what happens to um, Anton Yelchin's character, but we don't even know what actually happens to both Evan and Benia in this moment because, yeah, because at this very, this scene is where, you know, Evan is literally losing his mind and it's completely fading away. So we don't know what happens. Like we don't know how Evan died or anything, and it's just left up to your interpretation. I guess, you know, having (laughs) seen the theatrical cut, I can make out what obviously did happen, but yeah, it's just such an interesting experience watching this film and seeing a filmmaker, like, apply different techniques to something that wasn't in the theatrical cut, but making something that feels tonally and visually different. And even mm. Trader even adds a couple little scenes that weren't even in the theatrical cut at all. Like there was a little yeah. scene after where he, uh, Evan goes, sees his doctor and gets the full, his full diagnosis. Like the doctor says, I have another, a friend of mine you should go see. There's, he's waiting for you. And then Evan goes to the, goes, goes to almost wants to go into the office but then he decides not to and walks away but then we find out what actually happens to Evan afterwards because he goes meets a friend that he knew uh pro- most likely someone who worked in uh the CIA as well who has basically uh in like an old folks home or possibly or like And, and we can see that this person is completely shut down as a person. Like he's just not there anymore. And I guess in a way, I guess we kind of make the assumption that this man is kind of went through the same thing as Evan did, or at least something similar. And so it's kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen to Evan. I mean, Evan later on in the film. And there's also a little bit of bits and here and there of a bit more character development as well so like it's just it's an interesting cut like it's very much more experimental than anything else and i think the only way to kind of really watch it is you need to watch die in the light first to kind of view this one in comparison because if you watch dark on its own i don't i i think you'll still get something out of it like If you did, but I feel like watching the two and sort of comparing them, it makes for a much more uh, interesting experience. Like comparing these two films on how, like how two different approaches to this story differ in a lot of ways. Of course, one being from the filmmaker himself, and the other one being from the from the producers that took the film away and did their own thing to it.
0: Yeah, it's 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 so interesting to sort of read about it because I'd, I'd sort of read as well that the um, I think the dark version seems to make Evan Luke Cage's character maybe like a lot more sympathetic, a little less cold. Yeah, um, mm. I certainly got from Anton Yelchin's character in *The Dying of the Light* gut, at least that he seemed I mean, I didn't have an issue with him, but in some scenes, he he just seemed almost I don't know slimy in some ways because he seemed like he was yeah. quite into uh, all of this kind of. Espionage of espionage and like this all kind of revenge thing and um, mm. just just a little creepy in some ways. So I think it's nice that they're certainly fleshed out. Um, mm. But I, I think certainly from seeing the ending, from what I saw of the last fifteen minutes in the Schrader um, masterclass as well, i also comparing that to the like I think the weird, jarring, almost dying of the light ending that gets extended into another ending than just kind of ends ending it's, you know, you have as you said, they, they they meet each other, it's almost this battle of like, well which of us is deteriorating the quickest and is going to die first, and then mm. it, it's, obviously it's implied he's had that attack of sort of dementia and then he leaves suddenly, like he's going to choke him with his belt or something but then just sort of panics and leaves then there's the sudden shootout out of the hotel pool, which kind of comes out of nowhere um mm. Cage takes one or two bullet shots. Um, uh, Milton is shot as well. And then they have that little uh, the scrap there, the Evan versus Benir scrap, which is just kind of <laughs> a little uncomfortable to watch, because it's just two weak men rolling around, sort of biting each other, having a little, like, a few digs in the gut as well. And you're like, I know I'm supposed to be on the CIA side, because terror isn't bad, obviously, but I just felt like, oh, guys, just stop. Just stop. Just go back to your chairs. Have a sit-down. But what I found really jarring as well about that that little tussle, and um, can't really call it a fight scene for sort of the reasons mentioned. One has dementia, one has a blood disorder. Um, but they have that short fight, and then suddenly it's ended with that mortal combat fatality of Evan fucking pushing his finger through Benia's eye. <laughs> killing him. And I was just like, like again, I know Baneer is the terrorist, and I know that he's the reason why um, Evan is dealing with this uh, fronto-temporal lobe dementia. I, I might have got that wrong, but he's the reason he has the issues that he has now.
1: Mm.
0: Um, but even so, I thought that felt like a bit much. That felt grotesquely out of nowhere. Um, mm. You know, I I, know, you know, not that I'm a man who ranks my killings in my film, but I think. You know, maybe just the belt choking would have been all right, um, or just a little knife, just like ugh, fading away. Um, so, obviously, from what I saw sort of the Dark Ending as well, you don't get the finger push for better or worse. Um, mm. do, you, do you think that the Dark version, as much as it had going on with the experimentation and all the coloration as well, do you think it needed an eye poke in there,
1: or were you happy that we uh, did <laughs> we didn't get it? To be honest, though, I guess. To be honest, I, I preferred the dark ending because it was more interesting to me as a viewer. Uh, but I can understand why the eye poking would have been in the theatrical cut because, you know, um, you know, I don't know whether it was something that was in the original script and, or it was something that the producers suggested Schrader to put in as a tacked on thing. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. Um, so yeah, I, for me, like, I wasn't too bothered by the scrap, but I just found that whole kind of their relationship in this film interesting, because like you said, both these men who are enemies, they're all, they're both dying in different ways with Evan. It's more, it's his, it's his mind that's slowly dying. And with uh veneer, it, you know, like you said, it's a blood disorder. So his body's practically dying. Um, so seeing these two men just go at each other knowing that they are sick, now that you say um, in "the how weird that is, it does feel very weird, but it, it does feel like it's kind of a tacked on kind of ending. Like it's more yeah. like a, a producer or a studio kind of mandate to put in an ending that, you know, normal everyday viewers would enjoy. Because if you kind of ended the film the way that the dark ending does, audiences probably, or at least, yeah, everyday audience, audiences um, would absolutely despise it or feel that it's anti-climactic
0: yeah definitely I think I definitely agree that I think with the dying of the light version that's I think definitely proves the saying, well this is an espionage really. we've got to have the good guy overcome the bad guy we've got to have that that gratification of the good old red white and blue America coming out over the top of those uh, those pesky terrorist boys over there Um, But then I found, you know, just that sort of jarring change almost with the dark version of the ending where it doesn't get physical and it is just um, two rapidly deteriorating men having a confrontation of words um, and basically who who can die the slowest to overcome. But I think again, it's interesting that uh, you know, there there is the implication that Evan does die in the dark ending because you get that last shot of the um, just like the, the graveyards, the cemetery, the headstone, and you he don't explicitly know what happens to Beni. Obviously, as we said, he doesn't get the eye poke. Um, in that one, he's spared the fatality, so it's, it's implied that he sort of dies and succumbs to his own illness. Um, but then it's just that sort of craziness of uh, all the the coloration and the the abstract, uh sort of camera work and the editing and very sort of avant garde and I think with, that, with with all sort of the footage from sort of what I've gleaned there, you get those um you know, those insights into uh Evan Luke's deteriorating minds, as you said with the voiceover at the start, we're like um, this is the brain of our protagonist, the red signifies this, the blue signifies this so you've got some kind of context for the coloration as well, so you've got that mm. visual sort of like cue of what's happening there, and it's um, and then you see that there's, there's memories as well, because I think when he sort of admits to Benir, he's like "Um, oh, it's my mind, Um, that's going and Benir's kind of like in some ways almost sympathetic, I think there's... I think you can sort of read maybe, like, um, a begrudging sympathy between them, because they've both been reduced to this. Um, And then you see, like, the memories of him sort of, like, saluting the flag, like, the black and white footage of him, presumably him as a boy as well. Uh, And Benia says something, like, with the mind, it's like, oh, like, memories, like, you have so much to lose. And then you see him losing those memories. Um... And then it all just goes, like, flashing an orange and just, like, these sort of jarring colours. And um, Now, sort of, again, you know, you can't just go to the cemetery, so it's the big implication, cinematically at least, that he's succumbed to his illness and he's died. Obviously, with Dying of the Light, it is, um, you know, post-finger poke, apparently he drives into a truck, uh, which is very, like, wow, okay. Um, but it's kind of interesting, you know... I think when when you come away from it as a viewer because with the dying of the light ending you know he sort of ploughs into that truck um and then you get that footage of like the cemetery then uh Langley where the CIA headquarters is and then Milts giving Michelle a memento and it's it's laced with the the speech that he gives at the start of the film saying like 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 rookies why are you here the CIA we fuck everything up it's because 911 got you raging in your pants and and that call to arms. <laughs> um, but then, you know, you, you don't get that. But it, it, it's kind of... I think they tried to push this patriotic feeling of, like, well, he died for his country. Mm. But I left the dying of the lie, and I think maybe because of the 90 minutes that preceded it didn't really help. But yeah. I came away from it with the credits roll, and I was like, I was like oh, oh, I didn't really feel anything. But then at least... Mm. I guess it's better work by the time from the dark ending that I saw, even though I only saw the 50 minutes, not, you know, the 70 sort of preceding it, um, you know, I felt something at least. I felt sad. Yeah. I felt bummed out. I felt like just upset that, you know, with the camera work. And as you said, it's almost the way they interlace it to show his deterioration. There's a the color work, obviously, but there's like they splice in, it's almost like found footage, close up yeah. VHS uh, camera work it's um, it's visually very interesting but between all of that I just felt upset and I don't know if the ending of Dark got you in a similar way and I guess the Dying of the Light ending did that not get you in a similar way.
1: Yeah well with, du- with Dark I'm um, sort of thinking about it now and we also like I sort of remember now with the film like Schrader even tilts the camera as well and has you know induces a lot of Dutch angles as well. So which is obviously he must have did in post rather than because uh, a lot of the, the film, at least the theatrical cut, is like all static shots. But at least he's like shot it in different ways to make it much more interesting. But I do what's interesting to me, like in the lead up, at least to the ending, is like whenever we see, like it's not to say that um, dark makes. Evan fully sympathetic. Like, there, there are little bits here and there where, you know, um, Evan says some pretty horrible things. Like, at one point, he even says, like, sort of very derogative terms about Muslim people uh, in the Ruby Tuesday scene, which I can't remember if that was in the theatrical cut or not because I didn't remember that moment. But the thing is, when you kind of see Evan, when he's, like, has his spells of anger or outbursts and stuff, that's when the film does get into that experimental style. So we can see like, Oh, this is, this is all part of his illness. Like this isn't really him. Like all the things that he's, how he's behaving throughout this film, like at least from this version, we do sympathize because it's this, he's only acting this way because of what his illness is doing to him. And as um, the doctor said earlier, like you'll have, uh, spells like outbursts and like an almost bipolar yeah like uh, a personality as well um so like in the theatrical card yeah he says all that and we see those outbursts but we don't really feel anything um but in this version since uh, schrader shoots and edits these scenes in a way that puts us in like in evan's um mindset we do get what he's going through and we do it like, sympathize with him. And then once we get to the ending, um, we realize that it's what happens to Evan is a tragedy. Because he's gone out of his way to find this man who, who brutally uh, tortured him 22 years earlier. And then he thinks he almost has him. And then that's when his mind completely melts away. And you can't help but feel, like, feel that this whole section is tragic because basically this whole thing was for nothing in the end. And even if he does kill Baneer, he's not going to remember it because his memories and everything are gone. And and then, of course, when it has the final shot of his grave, it just shows, like, this man died of a lonely death and because he had no one. And even if he did all of his memories are those people. i gone. got. And it's a, and it just, and, and it makes that ending, like I said, far more tragic and interesting. And we do gain a lot more sympathy for Evan as a character, even if he, like, we feel like he's, he, even though he's done a lot of bad things throughout this whole film, but we've, we followed him throughout this whole journey. But yeah, we just kind of but we in the end we do feel something for him because like this was the only thing that kept him going and in the end it just seemed like it was all for nothing because in the end his illness was the one that defeated him in the end.
0: Yeah, it it is really sad and I suppose we take into account um and again I'm not sure this comes across in sort of the sort of the dark cut but Certainly, in dying of the light when I think they're on the verge of enacting the plan. Um, that's just his Cage is disguised as the Doctor to get into the hideout, and um, and Milton is asking him, you know, well, how are you gonna do it? And then he's like, oh, I thought about this day for twenty-two years, and then it's, you know, this has been driving him for twenty-two years, and then it's the um, sort of the crushing the sanders that you know. This thing that has driven him that has been his driving force because he's not he doesn't have a family that we know of he's he's married to the job this is all he has and then suddenly at the very final hurdle so as he's you know sort of tensed ready to leap over it um he he can't do it because he's been let down by the whole thing which is just so um you know the one one release that he's wanted to promise himself and to take into cons- uh, consideration as well that the CIA have been convinced that this terrorist has been dead for 22 years um, as well. And no one sort of believed his hunches that he stayed alive um, other than Milton, who is effectively the protege in all of this. And then he doesn't get it. And it's quite upsetting as well. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it sort of made me wonder... Um, you know, uh, how, how Milton must have felt, especially in the dark edit as well. Because it was... There's that scene that they had in Dying of the Light, at least, where Milton goes to find him in his hotel room, but he's not there. So he has to sort of look out, and he sort of finds him sitting in a park. And um, it was like, oh, I couldn't remember the name of the hotel. I I, I got anxious like I had to leave. And he's he's... Cage is visibly upset, but this is, as we've been saying, without those Schrader edits, you just can't um, sympathise as much as the film wants you to with his illness, and it's kind of just and again, with the greatest of respect, it's kind of just Cage stuttering. It's like oh, 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 Glock it's a a gun, Uh, it's a dog and just him naming things and that scene with him sitting on the bench it's kind of Sadly, it's kind of unintentionally, you might get like a snigger out of it because it's Cage just sat there looking upset in a large Russian esque hat. I was like, <laughs> like, this is just, this is not the emotion I the film wants me to feel.
1: Um, I agree. I, as soon as, like, like I knew when that scene in the theatrical cup was coming and it was going to it. But then I think any kind of uh, seriousness I ha- would have had to the scene kind of completely went out of the window when. They show Nicolas Cage wearing the hat. Cause I thought, yeah. oh wow, that's like a huge wig on his head. Cause <laughs> the hat is the same color as his hair in the movie. And I, at first I thought it was like a, like a wig, like a Marge Simpson style wig. And they're like, oh no, it's a hat. And I'm thinking, <laughs> no, I don't know if that was, I don't know if that hat was Nicolas Cage's idea or not. I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Sure. But yeah, I think that hat kind of, <laughs> ruins whatever sort of dramatic purpose that scene would have had but that being said though uh in the dark cut with the paul schrader edits and cuts uh and that in the experimental style you don't really notice that hat (laughs) that much because it draws your attention to like what evan is going through in that scene
0: kind of a small mercy that the uh the hat has been drawn. I mean, if you can edit to a way that you're, the first thing you look at is not the hat, and you're not drawn to it throughout the scene, then that's definitely uh, credit to the craftsmanship of, of Paul Schrader with all things considered as well. Um, I mean, I did like In the Dark Cut as well, and this is again going to the masterclass of the side-by-side scene that he uh, that Schrader displayed. That's even with um, uh, Michelle, who in The Dying of the Light Cut isn't given... All too much to do she's kind of like oh he's a former uh they're a former you know, it was one time sort of love fling um she's a ex-journalist may have some connections um and then she just happens to find a makeup artist out of nowhere to uh put a cage in sort of like that the beard and just Basically, give him a haircut, which you know, credit by credit is due to the makeup artist. Uh, Cage looking like a silver fox, if I do say so myself, <laughs> <laughs> glean what you sort of can from it. But, um, there's, there's the scene bit where they're talking in the hotel, and obviously, in dark, you've still got like, you know, like the musician in the background, there's sort of a bit more ambience, and uh, audibly, it's a bit more interesting in that scene as well. Ooh. And then, so sort of Anton dismisses himself to go to the hotel room, and in Dying of the Light, they kind of Kay just kind of leans over the table and they just kiss and it kind of happens out of nowhere. Like, oh, all right, I guess. But in this one, you know, it it makes a bit more sense because Anton asks a few more questions and uh, Evan's like, oh, it's not really that glamorous. And then he leaves and Michelle's like, well, are you going to do it? And he's like, do what? You know, when are you going to kiss me? So there's, there's more, even though it's just a few lines of dialogue, there's like, okay, well, now I'm like... um a little bit more interested in this story between the two of you so it's just that the, um and it kind of sucks that you, I think as you touched on earlier it kind of sucks that you have to do it but the fact that you kind of have you have to watch dying of the light to for dark to make the most sense and to get the yeah. most out of it otherwise i think it will just be too much of um uh, a jarring experience if you go into dark blind. I mean, you know, if you do it, more power to you, and, you, and there's still absolutely something to get from it, but um, you have to go through the trials and tribulations of uh, the Hollywood meddling, the Hollywood machine to get to something far, far more interesting, um, which is just a shame. And, you know, it just makes you wish, and I think as we've sort of waxed lyrically on here, it just makes you wish that producers and the hollywood machine would and i don't know if they'll ever do it in our lifetimes but you just sort of wish that they'll just leave things alone like like i understand you know as part of the 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 cogs that have to turn to make that machine work then you know at some stage you know even with 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 any other film or the majority of the films you know scripts will be edited uh films will be cut changes will be made but there's still something enjoyable to find at the end of the tunnel but you just kind of wish with things like this just fuck off (laughs) just fuck just fuck off
1: yeah especially when you have a filmmaker like paul schrader at i mean at the helm because like we said earlier like this is a man who's written taxi driver raging bull and has directed so many great films on his own as a, and, and a lot of them have been critically acclaimed and some have been, you know, been up for the palm door at the calm film festival. So, and you kind of just think like, you know, with all that clout as a filmmaker, why, you know, producers or studios don't put more faith in the filmmakers. Um, But I guess, you know, it's a lot more of a complicated thing. It's not really sort of black and white. Like, it could be, like, you know, they were expecting one film with this and got a completely different one. Or it's kind of, like, too many cooks in the kitchen. Like, when you, like, filmmaking is a collaborative thing. Um, But, you know, sometimes producers think they know what's best for a film, like, creatively. But, you know, but they don't. Like, it's not to say that stuff like this doesn't work out well in the end yeah. Um, but this is a case where um, it's obviously that the, the the producers wanted one thing from this film saw that they didn't get that with um, Paul Schrader's first cut and was like oh well we need to make our money back somehow let's just take the film away get rid of his final cut approval and just make the film that's much more sort of uh, audience-pleasing as possible and so it can hit be more mainstream. Um, and in the end, like, it just didn't really appeal to anyone because anyone who loves a good espionage or a spy film could watch this and feel like... I mean, yeah, it's got an interesting hook if you have uh, a CIA agent who is lo- is losing uh, his mind to dementia... Uh, and he's in a race against time to for his final uh, case. But take that away and it's just a pretty standard uh, and kind of run-of-the-mill spy film. And But the way from Based on Dark, like Paul Schrader obviously kind of understood that, wanted to make something unique and interesting that we had never seen in a film like this before. Like showing this man's uh, illness, uh, how it affects him throughout the whole film by showing it visually. Because, you know, film has the power to do that. You know, you can show what these characters are going through through filmmaking. And um, instead of just, you know, just putting the camera down and just letting the actors do their thing, you can show what this character is going through, And that way it makes it a much more interesting experience. But Obviously, uh, the producers didn't want that, and and dying and the like kind of turned out the way they did. Um, and then, of course, but in a, in a way, uh, it's obvious that Paul Schrader was so passionate about this story that he would go on to make his own cut of the film anyway and release it on torrent sites because he obviously cared about this material. It's not like something's like oh well, that didn't happen. I'll move on to the next thing. Like I never got the creative control I wanted with this film, like, here's, I'm just going to go do my own cut, release it on the world, and whatever happens, so be it. I'd rather my vision go out there for everyone to see rather than everyone think, like, I made this film that was just dull and thinking, like, oh, it's all me when it, when I'm, and Trader would, I mean, when Trader would be thinking, like, ah, uh, that is not, that was not the film I wanted to make at all.
0: Yeah, and I think from what I saw when when Schrader sort of emailed Cage about it, and Cage's comments really kind of sum it up really, the whole um, the ordeal that was this film. Uh, He said, I'm an A-list actor doing A-list work who's being forced into B-list presentations simply because I had some hits in action films a million years ago. I am now in a beleaguered movie. It never should have come to this. And Nicholas Cage, you write, it never should have come to this. Um, I think, you know, in, in, in a perfect world, we should have been talking about Paul Schrader's initial vision of Dying of the Light to be the film that we more or less got with Dark, and I think it would have been a much more interesting film, um, a much more debatably and accredited film, and there would have been a lot more people talking about it, and then it wouldn't now be sitting on the uh, the rotten score of 11% on... Rotten mm. Tomatoes and um, just really, and again with the greatest respect to their careers, just a stain on the careers of the likes of uh, Cage, Yelchin, Schrader, and Refin as well. Um, just a dark, disowned patch on an otherwise, you know, um, great list of movies. Otherwise, um, and I think you know, just like with that, like with the ending of Dark, I think it sort of brings us sort of towards the end of the episode as it's, you know, there's no way to sort of not end on a kind of a somber note on this one. Um, But I suppose your, your final thoughts on, you know, dying of the light and dark, um, if you would be so kind.
1: (laughs) Um, I guess my final thoughts on both films, I think dying of the light, like, I I still think there are some merits in it. Like I think Nichols Cakes in the theatrical version still gives a really solid turn and i think if the film itself around him was the version that schrader went out to make in the first place or at least a much more i guess polished version than um the experimental version like still be very experimental but a lot maybe a bit more polished in how it's presented i feel like um this film probably probably would be better received and um nicholas cage's performance would be also got would have got a lot more praise um but that being said though for the cut that we ended up getting um it kind of takes a concept that is so unique and interesting for a spy film and just turns it into something that's very pedestrian and bland overall where you just like as we stated it is so kind of poorly paced that we're on, you think it's been playing for an hour, but it's only been playing for like 20, 30 minutes or something like that. But that being said though, I would reckon, but if people do want to check out dark, I would suggest them to check out dying light. Like we said before, they need to compare the two and see how, like, like how diff, how different these two cuts are. And for me, I've, i it's a good example. Like if you want to be a filmmaker, Watch both these films because you'll find interesting ways and how, like, certain different ways from different editing, different scoring, um, and also, like, sort of changing things here and there can make one sort of, like, one project interesting done from a different perspective in terms of you have a different person, uh, tackle it. Like, it's the same, like, again bringing back up justice league before like you watched the theatrical cut of justice league and the the 4 hour version that was totally Zack Snyder's cut like they feel you you can't help but feel like you can't that I can't believe that these two very different like these are the the same film but done from two different perspectives and it and it's an interesting exercise if you want to see how like like I said before, if you want to be a filmmaker, watch both these, both Dark and Dying of the Light, and just see the differences between them and how the same story can be told differently. Um, for Dark on its own, it definitely is worth a watch. Um, and one that takes a story that is so pedestrian and rather dull and makes something much more interesting and compelling. Like it's definitely the very definition of an experimental film, and it won't be for everyone, but I would take something like dark over something like the theatrical cut version dying of the light any day of the week.
0: Absolutely, and I think you've you've uh,
1: uh,
0: summed it up um, as eloquently as you can, given all the uh, all the issues here. I think all I can sort of wrap up to say is that dying of the light dead behind the eyes, but there is light in the dark. So God bless uh, the pursuit of the creative vision and sticking to the guns of Paul Schrader. Um, with that said, as we wrap up, um, thank you once again so much for joining me on the journey to True Cage Divider this week. This has been um, an enlightening experience, it's been informative, and it's been, um, for the right reasons, sombre as well um just to learn about all of this as well um for the listeners um in terms of the social medias and such uh, where can we find you
1: well uh, first of all i just want to say thank you daryl for reaching out and inviting me on the show i had a great time and anything to do with Nicolas cage i'm always down to talk about because <laughs> I mean, it's Nicolas cage because i mean who doesn't want to talk about him um, <laughs> but in terms of all my socials and that, uh, you can, if people want to follow me on Twitter, they can follow me at my Twitter account at twitter.com slash or you can find my personal writer's page on Facebook at facebook.com slash terrible Aussie. But of course you can find all my work over at supermarcy.com with my reviews, columns, and also, uh, you can find all the, all the podcasts, uh, that my co-hosts, uh, super Mastery and I host together uh, Super Podcast, Podcasts of Horror, uh, The King Zone, um, but, uh, to, the To Be Tuesdays podcast, which speaking of Nicolas Cage, we recently did an episode on Zandali. So uh, definitely listen to that one if you want to hear the hilarity because that was like the first time we watched that film. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also uh, The King Zone, which of course is our Stephen King podcast. So uh so you can find them all on the Super Network. Uh pretty much everywhere where you stream podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, and many others. So they're pretty they're pretty much on every uh platform if you want to give them a listen. Um and yeah, that's that's pretty much uh all my um socials. And yeah, just definitely check us check check out all my work and also uh, the podcasts as well
0: wonderful stuff all the links to those will be in the description down below uh, to be your mind thank you once again for joining me always a pleasure to have another Cage fan on the journey to true Cage Nirvana but that wraps up this week's episode as uh, so I say to you the listener thank you so much for listening if you have been we will see you in the next one but until then keep on keep on caging. that's all you have to do thank you take care and goodbye